Well, as you're making your way back to your seats, let's go ahead and turn in a Bible together. We're looking this morning back in the Gospel of Luke. The last two Sundays we had been uh, taking a little bit of a break from Luke's Gospel and looking at a couple of other passages which were pertinent to our specific Sundays together, but we are now uh, returning to the journey that we've been on through the latter half of Luke's Gospel. And so we find ourselves once again uh, in chapter 19, picking up where we had left off a few weeks ago, and looking this morning at the triumphal entry of Jesus. So it's Luke 19, beginning in verse 28. Again, Luke 19, beginning in verse 28. It's also printed there on the bulletin for you on page 9. But hear these words. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples and said, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying this colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God, it stands forever and ever. Amen. Notice that phrase, the Lord has need of it. That's funny to think of in one way, isn't it? The Lord of all creation, the second person of the Godhead, the Redeemer of mankind, the omnipotent God of the universe, to whom are all things, for whom are all things, the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The Lord has need of it. Notice he has a need, we're told, but second, he seemingly needs something so unglamorous. Think about that. He doesn't say here that he has need for a royal caravan to come into Jerusalem, though he is certainly worthy of such. He doesn't have need for the choicest of royal equine stock, you know, the king's stable to go and take the choicest of horses, though, again, he is worthy 
of such, not an entourage of soldiers or stewards, but it says, he says, he has need of this cult, a need for something so basic and so unglamorous. And again, the fact that he has a need at all, what is it that Jesus, as God, lacks? What is it that he lacks? Nothing, right? Nothing, of course. Or couldn't Jesus just have spoken a cult into existence? Again, you know, he is the creator of all, by whom, through whom all things exist, right? Couldn't he just have spoken a cult if he wanted that? Don't you like to think about Jesus when he was a child? And, you know, did he do certain things that we don't have recorded, as you know, in some of the, you know, uh, the false gospels and so forth, there's these, you know, imaginations which swirl, oh, wouldn't Jesus, you know, did he hit a home run every time in baseball, you know, in Little League, couldn't he have done that, he threw a no-hitter every time in Little League, because he's Jesus, you know, again, we'd like to go down that road, we have to be careful, you know, we limit ourselves to scripture and scripture alone, of course, but we can, we can, we can do that, right, this fanciful imagination, couldn't Jesus just have created a cult even there if he, if he wanted to, of course, he could have. But here, right off the bat, we learn a valuable lesson in today's passage. A couple, actually. The first is that Jesus doesn't have a need or a lack as we typically define those things in our lives. What is a need for us? Well, something that's missing, something that is askew, something that we we wish for or we hope for or we strive for, something that we are incomplete without. Well, here we see that Jesus, again, doesn't have a need like we define them. He doesn't have a need here based on incompletion, but Jesus here has a need based on inclusion. A need based on inclusion. We see here right off the bat that God delights in including or incorporating the ordinary things to accomplish the extraordinary. Isn't that true? All throughout Scripture? Can't we also see that even in our lives at times? That God delights in including or incorporating or weaving in, if you will, the ordinary things in order to accomplish the extraordinary. God delights in including or allowing the natural to be a vehicle for the supernatural. God delights in bringing his purposes to bear through willing vessels, those who are available. We joke in sports that the the greatest ability, you'll hear say, is what? Availability, right? You could be a superstar quarterback, but if you're injured, can't stay on the field, what good are you, right? The greatest ability is availability. Well, here even we see something, something like that, that God delights in incorporating those who are willing vessels into his plans for his glory and for our good. And we see that here, again, both with the cult, who is on her maiden voyage, if you will, a cult on whom no one had yet sat, the text says. Well, here, on her maiden voyage, she will now support the weight of the Messiah. She will have the distinct privilege of carrying the King of Kings, Again, who for all intents and purposes, this cult is an unimpressive creature. But now, because of the role that the cult played, that cult in our minds is where? Like in the, in the animal hall of fame, right? If there's, one, if there's a hall of fame in heaven, you know, there's the hall of faith, which Paul mentioned, right? Hebrews 11. Well, if there's an animal hall of fame in heaven, well, now that cult has a plaque, right? Again, 
He or she was available and God delighted to, to use them. This cult can now go back and do some bragging you know, in the stable about who they gave, again, support to here. The King of Kings, the Messiah. But we also see this truth in this beautiful inclusion by God of the disciples who in similar fashion are men that are positioned in such a way through this story with their lack of deserving and merit also, but like the cult, are put in this position to both witness and and, and partake here of the supernatural faithfulness of Jesus. The disciples here are also put in a position to exercise faith of their own And in doing so, see it blessed and honored by God. They are positioned, again, through such faith to participate in this real and tangible unfolding of Christ's kingdom right before their very eyes. And that, again, helps us see these lessons for us as well. That if Jesus, again, decided in that moment, like we kind of joked about, to go all, you know, creator on us and just speak a donkey or a colt into existence for his purposes of riding into Jerusalem in that very moment, then this colt would have never had the privilege to, again, carry the king of kings and to be a part of that story and that drama of redemption. Or if Jesus decided in that moment to, again, to bypass the involvement of the disciples. Isn't that so easy for you and I? Even here as a dad, I struggle with that sometimes. That I should do a better job of incorporating my children into my plans and into my purposes or even you know, things around the house, right? You know, chores or, or building a life together. But it's sometimes easier to do it ourselves. Isn't that true? I'll just do it myself. I don't want, I don't want to take the time to have to teach you. I don't want to take the time to have to allow you to mess up or to, to fumble away the response. I'll just do it myself. It's easier. It saves me time. Well, again, what if God did that? We know, of course, salvation is wholly his project. He gets the glory. He does the heavy lifting, but he likes to use us. He delights even in using us as a loving heavenly father delights in seeing his children accomplish things and, and flourish. So what if Jesus decided in that moment, to bypass the involvement of the disciples by, again, either having a cult already there that he just spoke into existence? Or couldn't Jesus have, like, you know, Paul mentioned fairy tales a minute ago in our call to confession. Couldn't Jesus have, you know, cast a spell on the villagers, if you will, put them in some kind of divine, you know, twilight sleep, And the disciples could creep in, you know, and just like take the donkey, take the colt or something to that effect. Or he could have called the colt to him divinely without guidance, sort of like when the Philistines sent the ark back to Israel. Do you remember that story? 1 Samuel 6. The Philistines sent the ark back to Israel by yoking the ark to two calves that had, you know, never yet pulled anything. And they, they, they take the calves away from their, their, their mother. So by nature, those calves should have returned to their mother. But instead, what do the calves do? Do you recall the story? They marched towards the territory of Israel. And the Philistines knew this was of God. This was where it belonged. You know, couldn't Christ have done the same thing? You know, given like a divine GPS, you know, to the colt who just makes his or her way over to him for his purposes. Well, again, if Christ had employed 
this divine power, then the disciples wouldn't have been included in the process. And they wouldn't have had to undergo this scenario that we see recorded for us, where they have to exercise faith. And they have to exercise faith, particularly by taking God at his word, even when it seems incredulous or risky or hard. And again, that's convicting for us as well. There are times where God wants us to take him at his word, even when his word or his instruction or his commands seem incredulous. First, Christ tells them there will be a cult where he says there will be a cult. They must trust him. And second, not only will a cult be there, but when they go, when they march on up, all confident, all brazen, and they stroll, if you will, into that man's driveway, that stranger's driveway, and untie his colt. Which, again, is no small feat here in an agrarian society where, where colts and cattle and livestock are, are, are living currency. They, they will be able to untie it, and when asked, can just reply, the Lord has need of it. It reminds me, I've told you before, when I first visited my father-in-law for the first time, visiting my, at the time, was future, right, father-in-law and mother-in-law up in North Carolina, and I rolled up there in my Dodge Ram pickup truck with their daughter in tow, and her plan was for us to surprise them, but we were getting in later than expected, like after midnight, and I said, you know, I'm going to drive into your father's driveway after midnight in a strange pickup truck he's never seen before. And at that time, I had like loud exhaust in my pickup truck as well. We're going to rumble in there in the mountains of North Carolina. And her father, who is a proud, gun-toting American, okay, <laughs> uh, I said, this doesn't sound like a good idea. Let's give him a call, okay? The surprise will be good enough. We made it to the state line, okay? Let's call him from here and give him a little warning. And she agreed, okay? And that's why I'm still here today, all right? <laughs> that's why we're still married or married at all, okay? But again, think of this now, right? Strolling up into this man's driveway, untying his colt and simply saying the Lord has need of it. Do you ever wonder if the disciples, like on their way, tried to test it out first? You know? Maybe they stop by the bakery in Jerusalem first and try to take a loaf of bread. Hey, what are you doing? The Lord has need of it, right? Only to get arrested, right? Or now, of course, their minds are they're doubting. Oh, my gosh, is this going to actually work? Again, think about the scenario. Rolling into the driveway. But again, by Jesus involving the disciples, their faith is tested and his faithfulness is proven. And the choice by Jesus, again, think about all these characters in this wonderful story. The choice by Jesus to go and select this particular cult from this particular pasture is this beautiful illustration, really, and reminder of the electing grace of our God. The cult didn't choose Jesus. He chose the cult. But upon it being chosen, what did it do? It responded. 
It responded. It was given new life, new purpose, a new name, if you will. This is a cult that we remember for the rest of history. And the cult delighted to play its role. And again, that's true of you and I. That that Christ and his goodness chose us from our particular way of life, our particular pasture. The Lord has need of you. If you don't mind being compared to a donkey's colt, again, don't worry, I'm not going to use uh, the King James Version, which likes to use different words for donkeys, if you remember that. But it's as if Jesus here is saying, you know, bring me, bring me Roland, bring me Jay, bring me Lisa, bring me Jennifer, bring me John. You were going your own way, you were doing your own thing until God showed up and said, I have need of you. I have need of you. I need to save you. I need to love you. I need to make you my own. I need to showcase through you my glory, not because I'm incomplete. Not because I'm incomplete. God, Jesus here, has everything he will ever need in the company, the beautiful company of the Trinity, beautiful fellowship of the Trinity. I have need of you, not because I'm incomplete, but because I want to include you. I want to include you in what I enjoy in the Godhead. I want, to, I want to include you in what I enjoy in the fellowship of my people, my, my bride whom I have redeemed. Or again, thinking back to the disciples, again, Christ doesn't employ his divine power in a way that wouldn't require their participation, but rather in a way where they are directly involved and they have to take him at his word and trust him. And again, that's what we call faith. Faith. And for the cult, you know, it might be one way to look at it. But for the disciples, by this time, that would have been a little bit of an easier ask, if you think about it. It's still incredulous. It's still amazing, the scenario. It's still hard to believe. But at this point, it would have been a little bit easier if you think about it for them. Because by now, when Christ asks them to do this on his behalf... They have already before them this long track record of his faithfulness to look back upon. We're in Luke 19, not Luke 1. So by now, he has done things like turned water to wine. He has opened the eyes of the blind. He has cast out demons. He has raised the dead. He has healed the sick. He has fed multitudes. He has walked on water. He has done all these things. But by them having to exercise faith, and by them having to now again participate in his kingdom work, who receives the blessing? Who receives the blessing? They do. It's the very disciples that he is now riding into Jerusalem to save. And again, the same thing is true for you and me. That we have seen the faithfulness of the Lord many times over in our lives. We sang a minute ago, you know, the goodness of God. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. We too, in our own way, again, we we weren't there like the disciples were, face to face with Jesus, which is amazing. But we too have our track record of God's faithfulness in our lives to look back upon. He created us. He saved us. He continues to sustain us and bless us. Even when all seems lost, when all things seem impossible, he has been there for us so that now when he calls us to step out in similar faith, in similar incredulous faith, 
we can hopefully obey him and respond in the same way that the disciples do. Again, maybe with trepidation, of course, we're, we're still human. Maybe with doubts, I, I like to believe my scenario where the disciples doubted, you know, and tested it in the bakery or other places. We're human. But we can do it with confidence and trust because we know he has been faithful before and will be faithful yet again. And again, when we exercise such faith and we obey the call of God, whether it's to mission, whether it's to evangelism, whether it's to witness, to go where he wants us to go, we, we open ourselves up to service, we have the same privilege the disciples did in this story, which again is to be now included in how God actually unfolds his plans. Again, this grand narrative of redemption, it's as if he gives us now this, this role, you know, we get to play a part in this redemption and we delight in that. We don't have to serve God. What does the story tell us? We get to serve God. We don't have to serve God. He doesn't need us. But we get to serve God. We get to have the privilege of being used by him to bring about the salvation of the world, the advancement of his kingdom, whether that's with our time, our resources, our talents, our treasures, or, or all of the above. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, who are we? We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Notice that trajectory there in, in Paul's letters. God does the work of saving makes us a new creation, gives us a new identity and a new purpose, but then employs us, if you will, or gives us the privilege of being his ambassadors by which now we take that message of reconciliation to a watching world and get to participate in God's salvation project. We get to be included. We get to be used. We get to serve as ambassadors for the king. Think about the distinction it is to be an ambassador for even like a nation, right? If you're an ambassador on behalf of America, if you get appointed by the president, wow, what an incredible privilege to, 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 to be an ambassador for the watching world. Well, now think even, you know, well beyond that. You are an ambassador for the king of kings, for the, 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 the kingdom salvation of every tongue, tribe, and nation. We don't have to, we get to, and all for what purpose? Well, if you notice there how the text closes in verse 38 through 40, all for what purpose? Why does God include us? What's the purpose? Worship. Worship. Praise. Look at verse 38. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. 
But he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What does that mean? Have you ever thought about that? What does he really mean when he says, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out? It always reminded me of the classic riddle. If a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it still make a sound? Have you thought about that? We could pull the congregation and see you know, kind of what we think about that. That, that riddle actually uh, evidences a lot of things, subjectivism versus objectivism. It's kind of a fascinating riddle in, in, in reality. But think about that. If a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it, does it still make a sound? What's the answer? You can sit there. You don't have to shout it out. What's the answer? Yes. Right? Of course. Of course it makes us, oh, no, 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 no. Should be part of our membership class next time when I ask this, when I ask this question. Of course it makes us sound, right? Why? Well, because the event happened whether we were there to perceive it or not. Isn't that true? I could, I'd love to talk to Paul Copan about this. This is so many philosophical things. This, this would be a lecture for Dr. Copan sometime. But, but again, the, the event happened whether we were there to perceive it or not. The tree split, it fell, it hit the ground, the sound happened whether we were there or not. But if we were there, we would have recognized it, right? Our ears would have been given audience to the sound. We would have played a role in that event, if you will. And if you think about it, again, I know that's kind of a weird roundabout way, but if you think about it, something similar is at work here in Christ's declaration. His glory, his majesty, his righteousness and power and worthiness are so overwhelming and so complete. They're so good and true and beautiful. They're so intrinsically evident, if you will, that worship of him is going to happen whether we want it to or not, <laughs> whether we like it or not. Hopefully we do like it. Worship is going to happen by its very nature, by his very nature of being worthy, of being God, that the creation itself will shout his glory as the Son of God. But we have the choice, if you will, of whether or not we're going to participate in that chorus and join that chorus of the redeemed. In fact, Scripture speaks to this, that God's glory, God's, the worship of God is going to be happening all around, already is happening. I mentioned it in our call to worship or, or my, my opening remarks. That worship of God is happening already. It's been happening before the foundation of the world, even in what's been made. Isaiah 55. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you will break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Or Psalm 98. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. And so God, again, doesn't need us to accomplish his purposes, but he chooses to employ us. He, he allows us to participate for his glory and for our good. And likewise, he doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our praise as if he was lacking. 
Think about again what Paul says in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You see, he allows us to worship him. He invites us to worship him. When we are faithful to serve him and make him known, we bring others into that experience of worshiping him also. And we realize this is ultimately for our good. That we are called out of service to ourselves. We are called out of the limited confines of our own lives call out of our sin and shame into the expansive country, if you will, of God's grace. That by his cross, where we have been fully atoned for, and by his tomb, where death, sin, and evil have been triumphed over, we now find ourselves belonging to him. We find ourselves as part of the very family of God, we are let in, if you will, to the knowledge that all creation from the beginning has been seeing his praise, worshiping him, and we now again lend our voices to the chorus of the redeemed. What a privilege. What a, what a life-defining role that he has given to us. The Lord has need of you this morning need for you to open your hearts to his glory, need for you to open your hearts to his purposes. And he has need for you to join the everlasting chorus. Again, the same way that, think about like a, like a doctor, right? He's the great physician. The same way a doctor needs you to, to obey his commands, needs you to take you know, the medicine even he prescribes for you. Why? For his sake? No, not for, not for his sake, but for yours. For yours, that you might know the wholeness of life. That you might be more of yourself. Your true self, really, as God intended you to be. That you might find a life bigger and brighter than anything you can achieve in your own strength. Because the king is here. Behold him. And blessed are all who come in his name. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the innumerable lessons in this passage. We thank you that it speaks of you, the creator of all. And yet the one to whom all glory is due, and yet for us we chose differently. Chose to go our own way. Chose to be our own gods. And yet not satisfied to dwell in eternity without us, you came down to us. You triumphantly entered into creation of the person of Christ Jesus, who triumphantly entered into Jerusalem for the salvation of his people. And Lord, now we enjoy such blessing as ones who have been called out of darkness, called out of our sin, 
and shame and brought back into right standing with you. And now, Father, as that salvation continues to go out to every tongue, tribe, and nation, you have need for ambassadors. You have need for those of us who will say, here am I, Lord, send me. Even if that means being sent across our street, across our workplace, let alone across the world. Father, you have need of us because you desire for all the sheep who know you by name to come into your pasture. And so, Father, we pray that you would use us as you see fit, that you would open our hearts to receive such a call, that we would be faithful witnesses of yours, ambassadors of yours, again, wherever you've placed us. It doesn't have to be across the world, but even right here in Lake Worth. Father, would you help us to follow after you? And Lord, would we do so in the beautiful assurance, the wonderful knowledge of knowing that the gates of hell will not prevail against your kingdom, that you ultimately do the heavy lifting, but you simply love to include us. Again, for your glory and also for our good, that our lives would have purpose, that our lives would have meaning of which we crave that we would be a part of what you're doing and have been doing before the foundation of the world. So, Father, again, we thank you for all of these lessons and truths, and we pray, again, that you would press them deep into our hearts and that we would be a people, Lord, who don't just hear your word, but who respond to it, who do your word, again, through the power of your Holy Spirit. So bless us afresh, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.